We are going to uh, jump into, back into our sermon series in the book of Revelation. So we are in kind of a, a little mini-series right now, walking through chapters 2 and 3, which are seven letters to, to churches in the region of Asia Minor. We've talked uh, a number of times about the structure of these letters. So the structure is there's an address being made to the church. There then is an identification of Jesus being made. Jesus demonstrates his knowledge about the church by offering a rebuke and or affirmation of the church. He follows that up with a promise or a threat. And then in closing, he has these two phrases that we hear at the end of each letter to the one who conquers, and then that is followed by promise, and then he who has an ear, let him hear. And so today, uh, I believe it's letter five that we're in, so we just have a couple more letters the next couple of weeks that we'll be tackling. And so what, what we find in the book of Revelation, and we find this throughout the Bible, but there are a number of themes that keep popping up throughout the book. And so some of them that we've seen already are faith and faithfulness, repentance, and patient endurance. And, and these themes are not popping up accidentally. These are going to be vital themes to what's going to transpire throughout the book of Revelation. People are going to be called to faith. They're being called to faith right now because they are going to suffer or because they're going to go through trials in life where they are going to have to display patient endurance in their faith. And so John, the author of the book of Revelation, is setting up the scene for us by continually going back to these themes. All right, so let's read the verses that we're going to be at looking at today, Revelation 3. We're going to look at the first six verses, so let's read these. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words in this letter to Sardis. I pray that it would encourage us and challenge us. I pray that our hearts would be tender this morning. We would be able to hear what you have for each of us individually, and you would be able to draw us to yourself in these moments. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so as we begin today, I want to start with a history lesson concerning 
the city of Sardis. So Sardis was at one time a capital city in the region that it was in. It was a revered city from a military standpoint because based on its location, it was thought to be impenetrable, that no one could overtake it. So I've got a picture here. You can see right here, this is kind of in a valley. In the valley, you can see some of these old uh, remains here of the old city where the city, this valley was where the city was eventually built up. But look in the background and you see kind of that high hill back there, almost mountain-like uh, location. That was the esteemed military location, that mountaintop location. And here's a closer look at kind of the sheer face surrounding that area. And so the story goes regarding this area. There was a ruler in Persia named Cyrus. We learn about Cyrus in the Bible. But he was basically taking over the whole known world at the time. And the king over Sardis at that time was a man named Croesus. Okay, he was a very wealthy man. And, and he was wealthy because of a nearby river where gold was discovered. And Croesus, I believe, he was one of the first individuals to actually produce gold coins. Now, Croesus saw what was going on with Cyrus, and he took offense, and so he went out to fight him. But it didn't go well at all. So Croesus and his army was chased back to this mountaintop location. So they retreated back there, but to Croesus, this was not a big deal at all because he thought, we have this advantage. We have this location that is impenetrable. No one's going to be able to touch us. Now Cyrus and his army came and they surrounded this area. And Cyrus said to his men, I will offer up a reward to anyone who can figure out how to breach that fortress. So one night, some men were scouting what was going on, and they noticed that one of the soldiers up top dropped his helmet, and they heard it clink down on the rocks. And so they watched what was going on, and they watched a soldier come down out of a crack, grab his helmet, and sneak back into this crack, back up to the fortress. That's all they needed to know. The next night, the fortress fell because they had figured out how to breach the fortress. Now, this location fell twice to enemy soldiers because of laziness like this. So this is the known context for John and his readers as he writes this letter to the church in Sardis. And John begins then with this identification of Jesus saying, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we talked about this back at the beginning of the book of Revelation. That This might seem, this description might seem obscure to us, but this is communicating the fact that Jesus has the spirit of God, okay? Jesus is fully aware of all things, of everything that there is. God's full spirit and his knowledge is present on Jesus. So the idea that Jesus is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing and he's omnipresent, he is 
everywhere regarding these seven churches. And that's true about Sardis as well. Jesus then goes on to offer his rebuke. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Many armies had looked at the fortress in Sardis on the mountaintop and deemed it unconquerable. The reputation was that it could not be overtaken. It was too strong. Similarly, the church had, the re had a reputation of vitality and strength as well. They were known to be alive, but Jesus, knowing all things, sees that that church is in fact not alive at all. They are very much dead. Now, a reputation is of some value. A good reputation may get you a job, but that reputation won't keep the job for you. Someone may be known as a kind person, but what really matters is, are they kind when they interact with you? Ellen DeGeneres, talk show host, had a reputation as being funny and friendly. But a scandal that unraveled in 2020 real, revealed that she was cold and she was harsh, harsh and she was critical. That created this toxic work environment for others, those who worked with her as well as guests who would come on her show. So this woman was known for her generosity, but she was stingy towards many close to her. A good reputation is insufficient when it comes to spiritual realities. Reputations are built on works, on our works, on the things that we do. Maybe you are known as a good friend, but a day will come when you won't be a good friend. Maybe you're known as a hard worker, but a day is going to come when we will be lazy the reputation of a caring person will be undone by a fit of anger. Many of us try to build a reputation as a Christian by going to a church, by reading the Bible, by serving in various capacities, maybe by giving money or saying prayers. All of those works or activities are works being done by us. And if we base our reputation on those things, on our works, we're basing it on our goodness and our acceptance, which will fail us at some point. And, and the cross is really helpful here because what the cross does is, is it outs all of us. It reveals to us our sin and the fact that whatever my reputation might be with you, the cross says my reputation, whatever good you see in me, I need tons of help, that I am a sinner, that I put Jesus on the cross. So the cross out every single one of us in terms of our reputation. And so our attempts to try and create reputations for ourselves will never end well for us because Satan will find the crack in our performance and he will exploit it. We are born spiritually dead, victims of the sin of our forebears, those who have come before us, but then also because of our sin. We become alive 
not through religious activity or, or performing a bunch of religious works, but by trusting in Jesus' work on our behalf. He is our consummate friend, the one who worked all the way to death. His reputation as perfect and good and loving has been validated through his life, death, and resurrection. And so the call then for us is to believe in him, not believe in our works in trying to create this reputation, but to believe in Jesus and let our reputation be based on him and what he has done for us. So for those of us who assert we are Christians, we must wrestle hard with who we are and what our reputation is, or maybe what we want our reputation to be. Do we want to be known as fully devoted followers of Jesus? Do we want to be known as someone who robustly believes the gospel? And if so, is that what we are thought of at our places of employment? Would our roommates or our spouses, our children assert this about us? And, and the reality is, at times, for sure, people would say, no, that, that's not true of us. And so for all of us, what we have to wrestle with is that we are slumbering individuals. We do become lazy. We do need to be awakened. So maybe we have the reputation of being Christian, but we're just going through the motions or we'll refer to Jesus when maybe it's convenient for us or we need a little bit of help. Maybe the descriptor Christian is largely lip service and we're more so using Jesus to get some stuff that we might want from him. And what we learn from this letter to the church in Sardis is that if that's the case for us, even if someone else, the person next to us, even if they don't perceive that or understand that, Jesus sees it. He already knows our spiritual condition. He knows that in those moments that we probably view him as a genie that is called upon when we can't handle things on our own. He knows that, as it says here, our works are not complete in the sight of God. So Center Church, may we not be dismissive about this. Let's not just assume. Let's not just trust in what others think about us. It really only matters what Jesus says, what Jesus knows about us. Yes, Jesus loves us. We want to affirm this reality. But we, do we know this to the extent that it's creating love in our hearts for him and for other people as well? Are we actually being changed on the inside of ourselves because we know the beautiful, deep, rich love that Jesus has for us? What I know is that every single one of us needs to hear the warnings in this letter. Every single one of us needs to be called to examine our hearts. We need help seeing the kindness and the gentleness of God. We don't really see Jesus, how Jesus is better 
than maybe us not wearing a mask, or how Jesus is better than that next vacation, or how Jesus is better than wealth. We don't oftentimes see the beauty of what occurred on the cross and how that benefits us. We need help in these regards. We need Jesus to shake us from our slumber. So how do we wake up? How do we wake up? I think when we hear a question like that, we will quickly transition to, what do I need to do? How do I need to wake myself up? And this is the danger. The question that we will then ask is, what do I need to do, reveals our problem. We want to do something, but the biblical testimony makes repeatedly clear that we do not have it in us to do something sufficient enough to wake ourselves up. It says, as clear as day here in verse 2, I have not found your works complete. This is a great summary of our spiritual condition, of every single one of us. So then what? Well, there's a number of helpful words here for us. First of all, wake up. We must first understand what this says about us. So we want to focus on waking ourselves up, but we've got to first wrestle with what this is saying about us. At minimum, there are parts of us that are dead, but for some of us, we may be spiritually asleep. Even if we've been going to church our whole lives, think about the church in Sardis. Think about how hard it would be for the people in Sardis to believe that they are spiritually dead. For one, they are part of a church. Also, they are one of seven churches who are having, are privileged enough to get a letter being written to them. Now, on top of all this, there are probably many people who tell them because of their reputation, how spiritually mature they are, how spiritually significant they are, and their church is. Likely, based on what we've read in the other letters, these people have been persecuted to some extent. So they also have that going for them as well. Their faith is so great that they've been persecuted for it. They read in verse 4, also that a few of them are worthy. And so when we read a few of them are worthy, most people are going to assume they are part of those few. So for the church in Sardis, it would be really easy for them to be dismissive of what's being written to them. They're going to think this word is for the rest of the people in the church. And how about us today? We live in a nation that produces more Christian resources than any other nation. Many of us have probably gone to Christian college. Maybe we've had Christian parents. Some of us have been confirmed. Some of us have been baptized. We are part of a church, and for many of us, we serve in significant ways. We are maybe a member, a leader in some capacity. 
what this letter is telling us is that we cannot just assume that we are awake. And I'm not saying this to scare us in any regard, uh, just that we would examine our hearts, because this is what the Bible continually calls us to, to examine our hearts. And, and my goal, and this is not just to get myself or Center Church a good reputation, the point of this is that all of us would get to Jesus, and that we would allow Jesus to then set our hearts ablaze for him. So first off, we have to acknowledge that we are people who need to be awakened. Second, our works are insufficient. Okay, so we can't look within to wake ourselves up. We have to look outside of ourselves. And ultimately, that's looking to Jesus. Third, it says here, remember what you've received and what you've heard. What has a Christian received? If you are a Christian, you have received grace. You have received forgiveness. And the danger for many Christians is just to quickly move on from grace. The life of a Christian will be marked by grace. So holding grudges, selfishness, complaining, fixation on work or on money, a lack of robust engagement in Jesus' church, defensiveness, harshness, none of these things indicate a life that is being shaped by grace. In order for our lives to be shaped by grace, we have to steep ourselves in the gospel. Not just say the word gospel, but daily wrestle with what we have been forgiven. We need to repeatedly remind ourselves and others of how we have been shown grace and are being shown grace even today. We must look at the gospel and let it shine the light of Jesus' death and resurrection into our daily existence. Truly, deeply, let it shape us. This is what we ought to expend our energy doing each day, keeping. As it says here in verse 3, keep it. And in those moments, and there will be plenty of moments when we are not keeping it, where we seek to keep other things other than grace, to then repent, meaning to turn away from looking for life in things other than Jesus, turning back towards Jesus and finding life in him. Okay, then in verse 3, Jesus offers up, a threat. And I think this threat maybe can feel just a bit distant for many of us. Now, if you've had someone break into your house, you maybe can feel this a little bit more than the rest of us. But most of us have probably never had someone break into our house. We probably have strong locks on our doors and possibly security systems. Our neighborhoods may be relatively safe. And all of this would point to our works, 
our ability to employ common sense and wisdom in our own lives. But the Bible goes to great pains, and we've talked about this already, to warn us not to put our hope in our works. If we do, if we put our hope in our own works, if we do not repent, if we are not awakened, Jesus, it says, will come like a thief in the night because we're trusting in ourselves. And in this moment, his arrival will be unwelcome. Like the army of Cyrus that found the crack that led into the fortified mountain in Sardis, Satan will creep into our hearts and will invade us and slowly but surely put us to sleep on pleasure. And when we awake from that spiritual slumber, we will find ourselves in front of Jesus. And we will, in a very terrifying moment, see very clearly, yet dreadfully. And so when we read a threat like this, I think many of us get this picture of Jesus like, oh man, he's just trying to scare us into compliance. I think what Jesus, not I think, I know what Jesus is doing here is he's being merciful. This, this is actually another form of grace. We're being warned ahead of time so that we, we don't find ourselves in this spot. And, and so if we find ourselves in this spot where like there's this haunting notion like Jesus is after me, then we're not truly understanding who Jesus is and what he desires for us. And it's a call for us to go back into the gospel to understand who Jesus is and what he is ultimately seeking to do to save us from ourselves. All right, this letter talks about white garments and, and the white garments are promised to those who conquer. And, and this is symbolizing purity, okay? One, the pure, purity is the fact that we've been forgiven, okay? But these are garments, so garments are being put on, all right? So holiness is being put on us through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers to us. So, so that's the symbolic picture that is being offered to us here in this description of white garments. And then at the end here, uh, just a comment on names, Names are a pervasive theme in this letter, but, but have come up in previous letters as well. And names are a big deal throughout the Bible. And so it should cause us to just stop because names tie in so closely with this idea of reputation as well. It should cause us to stop and just ask ourselves some questions. What are the names that are meaningful to you? Who has given you a name that you highly value? What are those names? Hard worker, beautiful, intelligent, the perfect wife, strong, capable, provider. What we hear in this letter is that there are much better names than these that are given, such as friend of Jesus, child of God. 
are those the names that we yearn after most? And the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll say there are many times in our lives when, when we're not satisfied with that name. And so we look to the people around us to give us another name that maybe in that moment will be feel more meaningful to us. But these are the names that the gospel bestows on us and that we're called to ultimately treasure and value. All right, a couple of points of gospel application for us here this morning. Just a reminder, gospel application, we get to this point in our sermon. Uh, it, it is a reminder for us of who Jesus is and what he has done. All right, we don't get to the end of our sermons and just have application and say, here's what you need to do. This is the weight that we put on your shoulders. We call this gospel application because we're reminding ourselves of who Jesus is, that he took the weight upon his shoulders for us. So first of all, our spiritual deadness is a result of our works. There, there is nothing lasting or hopeful about what we might accomplish on this earth. Our deadness, spiritually speaking, our deadness towards Jesus is not because he doesn't care about us or because he, or because he forgets about us. It's because we prioritize other things. We, we want other names. We minimize grace. We care too much what others think and say about us. And this all happens so slowly that we can't see it occurring. It's like a child growing. We, we can't see them growing, but over a period of time, we can see that they have grown. We usually don't feel ourselves becoming inoculated to Jesus, to the beauty of the gospel. We don't notice the deadness because we're oftentimes laughing or we're being entertained. The reality is we get ourselves into this mess, this spiritual mess, and we need help getting out. Our discipline is not enough to get us out on our own. So our spiritual deadness is a result of our work. So I say this as a way to free us from trying to climb out of holes, spiritual holes ourselves. We let Jesus come to us, wrap us in his arms, and take us out of those spiritual holes. Secondly, then, Jesus takes dead things and makes them alive. This is what we see in the gospel. Jesus takes dead things and he makes them alive. He takes dead churches and he makes them alive. He takes dead marriages and he makes them alive. He takes bodies that are dying and he makes them alive. He does this with relationships as well. Are you believing in and following a savior who has actually died and came back to life? And if so, are you living in that way? Do you believe that Jesus has this extent of power? Do you live fearlessly believing this is who Jesus actually is? Are you hopeful? My desire for us at Center Church 
is, man, I want to see people get saved here at Center Church. I, I want, through our lives being lived out of the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our contexts, wherever we are, that people would encounter Jesus. They would see the beauty of the gospel. And that as we see people come to Jesus, that it would light us up. And we would understand the joy of following Jesus in new and deeper ways. That we would then be a church alive with the hope of the gospel. That we would understand this is who Jesus actually is. He takes dead things and raises them to life. Dead things being things that cannot come alive on their own. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus actually does. But it starts with our hearts. And it starts with us understanding where we are slumbering and looking to Jesus to wake us up.